And for us, a sermon is simply a time to, it's a time of exhortation, it's a time of encouragement. We take the scriptures and we teach and apply uh, scripture to our everyday lives and hopefully in very accessible ways. And, and normally that is done by elders for a lot of reasons, but uh, among them, uh, it's part of our teaching ministry, but it's also practically a lot of work to prepare uh, sermons. I know some of you may think, oh, you just probably like sit down on Saturday and jot out a few notes. We, tr- we try to uh, spend a lot of time preparing and praying over and thinking about how to equip and encourage you as a body through God's word. And so uh, oftentimes that's done by pastors, but uh, it's also not the exclusive domain of pastors. And so we have an opportunity to welcome members of our church, men and women uh, at times, to come in and also preach and, and give sermons. Uh, and from time to time, we get to welcome people from outside of our body who are gifted uh, in teaching to come and to share with us uh, God's word. And so this morning, uh, we are privileged to have uh, one of my best friends in the world, a guy named Nick Nye, uh, to be with us. Nick and his wife, Brittany, have four children, uh, Viola, Charlotte, Simone, and Elliot. Um, and they have spent much of their lives in Ohio, so they're Midwesterners. Um, Nick has been a pastor he was a church planter, uh, founded Veritas Community Church in the short north of Columbus, Ohio, the other Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, uh, right, kind of not too far from Ohio State University there, and they were there for uh, 10, 12 years, uh, and then uh, moved to New York City and pastored Apostles Church uh, there in Union Square, and uh, recently have moved back to Columbus, and now Nick is serving uh, a local organization there called uh, Catalyst, the Catalyst Group, and they are helping to bring together churches around issues of faith and work. Uh, and also seeking kind of a gospel movement there in the city of Columbus. And so uh, Nick and I had the opportunity to serve on the board together for a couple years at Sojourn Network, uh, which is kind of our uh, network of churches that we're a part of to plant churches and help uh, see uh, thriving churches kind of get started and and sustain. And so um, Nick is just a a fantastic pastor and husband and father, and uh, I'm so blessed to have him. He's been a guy that's walked with, him and Brittany have walked with Emily and I through some of our greatest challenges over the years as we've uh, planted this church, and Nick has trained our staff and spent time coaching our staff, and so it is such a great joy to have uh, you, Nick, here with us this morning. So let's welcome Nick as he comes to uh, share uh, from Exodus chapter 32 with us this morning. It is so good to be here, and uh, I've, I've wanted to come on a Sunday and just see many of you because uh, Brandon and Emily speak very highly of you. Um, believe it or not, some pastors don't speak very highly of their church, um, but I want to, in some ways, reciprocate some of that. Uh, my wife and I um, are just so grateful for the friendship of Brandon and Emily, and like we went bowling last night, and... It just felt like, like we should be in a league together or something because it was just so, it was so much fun and our kids really enjoyed one another and, uh, and time together. And um, one, of the, one of the values that we have in, in Sojourn Network, the network that we're both a part of, is friendship. And I think a lot of that value, those values came out, um, one, one, because Brandon and I were working on the values. We got to help shape the values, but I think it came out of just generally our friendship. And we were like, we want to see this friendship happen all across our network, not just with uh, the pastors, but the leaders and uh, the, the, the members of each other's church, and just to have a really beautiful network of friendship. Um, because they've been such a, good, a wonderful encouragement and wonderful friends to us. And so um, all that to say, it is, he, 
yeah, just so incredibly joyed to be here and, and with you. And so if you've got a Bible, would you open to Exodus chapter 32? I'm not going to read the whole chapter um, to your delight, I'm sure, but it'd be good to follow along. If you've got a phone or whatever, you can pull it up on. Um, that'll be good. Um, I'm really honored, actually, to jump right in the middle of the Old Testament book of Exodus with you as a church. I know you've been going through it, and, and I'm an outsider, so I may be talking about things that you've already heard before. I'm sure if you're, um, if you're like me, you just probably forget it anyway, so you need to hear it again. Um, but I'm really glad to jump into this. Um, so what, what we've seen here is Israel, that's God's people, they've been set free from slavery from the Egyptians, and you've watched their travels their ups and their downs as they've uh, faced a lot of turmoil and trouble as, as a nation. There's starvation, there was thirst, there was wars. I mean, they had a lot that happened in th- this time span that we've read in, 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 the, in the first 33 chapters. Um, then you've gotten to hear God's vision for his people through the Ten Commandments, right? His commandments and the law that came after that and how he um, were really given these instructions on how to live and how to move and how to think and how to work and how to um, pray and all of these things. Um, But the most important thing in the last section was the establishment of the tabernacle. It's a very churchy word, tabernacle, right? We don't talk much about the tabernacle uh, these days, but the tabernacle is the place where God would dwell with the people. Now, if you are going to understand anything that we're going to talk about today in chapter 32, then you got to understand this. This is the one time you can listen. You should listen, all right? God, his desire, now that the people were freed from slavery and setting up a new life, God's desire was to dwell with his people. His desire, his passion, his posture, everything was to dwell with his people. That's why the tabernacle is there, because he's, he's trying to do all this work to get with the people. His desire was literally to be among them, in his tent, with the table, the bread, the, the, the uh, lamb, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that was literally there so that, I mean, I mean, literally, not in a millennial sense, right? But literally, all of those things existed because God wanted to dwell with his people. It was all spelled out. I mean, this is God's posture to be with his people. Okay, that's God's posture still today, if you didn't know. So let's, let's just kind of hold that, hold that in our minds. But now, We get to chapter 32, and we have a huge problem, just a massive problem. There was this huge misstep, a huge interruption to the story. When all seemed good, when everything seemed to be shifting towards this positive, joyful presence of God with the people, God built all this stuff, all this wonderful new direction, um, this freedom that the people felt that they were going to be in the presence of God, quickly all all turns and seems lost in chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 31 says, it's a confession, really, Moses saying, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, 
This people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Our passage really drives us to talk about idolatry today. God's people made a god of gold. Now, but we, we can't just let this um, idolatry exist with Israel. Okay, we can't read this and say, man, Israel, you blew it. We've got our own gods of gold, and I want to look at that. I want to actually look at that. Yet, we see from this idolatry of the people, the, this failed worship, God's glory is once again being manifested. So there is a failure here, but there's not, it's the failure is not without hope. God's glory is still going to break through. It's going to shine brighter than the chintzy gold cow that, that comes out. So chapter 33 through 34 Show us the glory of God in the face of an, of, of an idolatry in the people. Now, I know I'm crossing the line. You're going to get to 33 and 34. And my hope is that I'm just teeing it up for next week so that you'll come back and you'll be like, give me God's glory, all of it. I want all of it. So I'm just going to tee it up, all right? You with me? All right, first, let's look at chapter 32. Now, if you follow the narrative closely, it's, it's fascinating because it's basically a replay of the creation of, the, of, of, of sin, sin coming into the world, of Adam and Eve in Genesis. It's this replay of the creation story. So follow me here. Israel has been miraculously brought out of slavery. They've experienced a baptism or a new birth through the Red Sea. They have been crowned God's covenant people at Mount Sinai. They have, listen, remember, they, they have a pillar of fire a cloud of smoke. So the pillar of fire is leading them at night. The cloud of smoke is, is guiding them through the day. And they have manna. Manna is still falling from heaven. It's not like that was a while back. It's still happening. It's still dropping from the sky every single day as provision for them in the wilderness. God's presence was clearly among them in unique ways. And then the tabernacle was being built to permanently have God's presence among them. But look what happens. They reject God. In the middle of all of that, they reject God. They make an idol of gold, and they call it God. Such a baffling turn of events. I mean, if you really look at this and think about it, this is just insanity. So 16th century pastor John Calvin, he's, he's as dumbfounded as I feel, and I hope you feel. He writes this, in this narrative, we perceive the detestable impiety of the people. They're worse than base ingratitude and their monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. Could they not see the pillar of fire and the cloud? Was not God's paternal solace, solace I can never say this word. Thank you. Abundantly conspicuous every day in the manna. Was he not near them in ways innumerable? I mean, what Calvin is saying is, this is ridiculous. Can you not see all the provision of God? Can you not see the work of God all around you? Can't you see everything that God is? And then you say, eh, I'm going to go for the God of gold. I mean, it just seems absurd. After all they've been through, all they've seen, the loss they've experienced, the war, like all of that. And look at Aaron. This is where it aligns very much with the creation story. Aaron, he responds just like Adam did in Genesis 3. Aaron blames the people, just like Eve. It's not my fault. 
says, oh, hey, Moses, you know, you know the, the people are set on evil. I tried to stop them. That's what kind of verse 22 says. Like, I tried to stop them. I tried to tell them that that's not a good idea. He even went as far as saying, I just threw the gold in the fire, and out by magic came this calf. <laughs> now, you've got to remember that the gold that they got was from the Egyptians. This is, this is, God, God um, allowed them to take the Egyptians' gold on their way out. And so, you know, maybe Aaron's like, hey, I was just throwing it away. Just getting rid of it. <laughs> He's just doing whatever he can to blame shift in this. But if you look at verse 4, it's clear that Aaron is to blame. He personally took the people's gold. Look at the language used in verse 2. Bring them to me. Verse 3, the people brought them to Aaron. Like, it's clear that this didn't just happen. And Aaron, Aaron was saying, bring it to me. Give it to me. Um, and then verse 4, he received the gold. It's clear that Aaron was orchestrating this. Then verse 4 says, he fashioned it with a graving tool. So he actually sweat over this, worked it. I mean, Aaron, you're getting called out here. You can't just deny it. I mean, it's like this was made to be underlined, these words like graving tool. I, I mean, he fashioned it. It's a tool. The writer is showing clearly that anything you have to make with a tool made with your personal stuff is, as Calvin said, stupidity. It's stupid. It's stupid to worship this. I mean, he, the way he's describing this is saying this is made. This is fashioned. This is made by tools that man made. In Tim, Chem Tim Chester's commentary, he reminds us that all sin, all sin involves a crazy loss of perspective. Some of you know that, right? You know that, man, you just lost your mind. It, it's, you lost the perspective, and we lose sight of God's generous provision, and we grasp or we envy. It's like they've all lost their mind for this literal sacred cow. But before we just point at their stupidity and laugh at their stupidity and just are be baffled by their stupidity? I mean, can we turn to the real idols of our hearts? The real idols that we make? I mean, we, we are, um, we don't make, necessarily make statues like this and call it God. We're Western, sophisticated, modern people that we would know that anything we made by, by our hands can't necessarily be called God. We may put it on our mantle and say, this is the most amazing piece of woodwork ever in the history of the world that I made, but we probably wouldn't worship it as God, right? We're too sophisticated that. Well, so then what is idolatry? What is idolatry in us? What is idolatry in the Western modern world? What does that look like? Well, English pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. He says, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy, and my money. You and I create idols in and through our lives why? Here's, here's a base. Here's a foundation. 
We want control. Let me give you another long, long quote. I'm, I'm quoting a lot here, but uh, it's just too good to not quote. But there's a quote uh, by a guy from named Richard Keyes. He wrote uh, The Idol Factory in a book called No God But God. It says, Sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God, to be laws unto ourselves or autonomous, so that we can do what we want without bowing to his authority at the most basic level. Listen, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and within the world if we do not want to face the f- if we do not want to face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness rather than look to the creator we have to deal and deal with his lordship we orient our lives towards the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired direction since we were made to relate to God but do not want to face him Uh, and let him control and shape us. Thus we forever inflate things in the world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. We do not just eliminate God, but we erect God's substitutes in his place. You see, you look at the lordship of God. If we stop and we take in his holiness, his power, his majestic nature, his beauty, his sovereignty over all of creation, his just everything of who he is, rather than dealing with God as he is in that way, rather than looking at him and saying that is truly who God is, we move ourselves towards the things of creation because we're like, I just, I, I can't get that. I can't control that. God's too wild. He's too big. But this right here, I can control. I can control these things on my level or within me. I can control me because at creation's level, our level, we can control and we can manipulate and we can shape so that we don't have to deal with God being God. It was easier for Israel to fashion a golden calf with their very own materials. It was easier for them to control creation, even though God was all around them, his power, his sovereignty, his provision, all that's all around them. It was just easier to, they couldn't control any of that. All of that was leading their lives. All of that was guiding them. All of that was freeing them, but they couldn't control any of that. This gold, they can control I can make something. Psalms say they exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot God. They forgot the mysterious, majestic, mighty God and turned to creation, a grass-eating animal. Now, let me it's not even a grass-eating animal. It was an image of a grass-eating Im- uh, animal. Right? Like, so my father-in-law is a farmer, a beef farmer. And just a few months ago, I'm in Ohio at their farm, and we're having a big party because we were uh, just back from New York City, and my brother and sister-in-law were in from Florida, and so all the family came over. And my wife's family is like, 700 people. It's just crazy. So we have a big thing out on the farm, and one of the cousins got the cows loose. 
Now, I don't know if you guys are too city for this, but when the cows get loose, things get a little buck wild, right? So the cows get out, and um, everybody kind of freezes and goes crazy. I'm helping my parents, my parents, to the car. My parents, you know, they're from the suburbs. They're, you know, they're not having any of this. And, um, and so I have to run out, and um, the, 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 two giant, the two big cows are out, and they're going crazy. And there's, like, food and tables and everything set up, and they're just running. These are gigantic cows. So a bunch of guys get out, and yeah, i got to do this, and basically corral it, and it's jumping at you and, and these kinds of things. Like, we, you can't control that. You can't even control it. So what I'm saying is this wasn't even that. This wasn't even an actual cow. This was a statue of a cow. They want control so much. They want to have control so much that they're going to just make a statue. Verse 8 in Exodus 32 tells us the people um, said this about the golden calf. This, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, everybody that would be there would have to scratch their head and say, really? Really? So, what is it you turn to? To control. What are your idols? Listen, often most of you are going to have a hard time answering that question because, because of this. Listen, you, you aren't going to know really because you're, you're sophisticated and you're smart. You don't make these wooden things or these golden things, these kinds of things. You're going to have to look at the signs. So let me ask you this. Where does fear anxiety, shame, rise up in your life the most. Because if you start seeing that, noticing that, and you say, this is making me really anxious, that is like a sign that is pointing you to your idol. This anxiety is rising up so high in me over this particular thing, so therefore, let me look, man, this particular thing is being shaken and messed up and messed, messed around. I'm losing control of it. And so therefore, it just brings a lot of anxiety out. When, when your idol, your God, is under threat, um, you will uh, have a reaction. And oftentimes, we may not know what the idol is until we have that reaction. So if your God is sex, when it is under threat to be taken away, to be abused, to be challenged, it shakes your very being. When your God is career, when it is threatened or taken, we melt down. So what in your life is causing these emotions? What is stirring up this anxiety and this fear that's so intense because it is there that is the sign that is pointing to your golden calf. And it takes some time for you to stop and be aware and look and see and dwell and say, I'm going to identify this idol. I know, I know all of us here today are carrying around many idols, many gods. Now, I don't, I don't want to just talk around these idols. But what I think we need to do as a community 
what you need to do as a church, what your missional communities need to, to start addressing is addressing them head on, naming them, and unmasking them, right? Show them as imposters that they are just, I'm, I can't believe I'm worshiping this God of gold, this, this cheesy calf, right? You need somebody else to come along and unmask and say, look, I mean, you, can you believe you're worshiping your career like that? It doesn't matter. Let me, let me name a few that I'm just going to, there are surface level idols that I see in our world today. I'm sure none of you struggle in here because Brandon tells me you're very holy people. Um, but let me just name a few um, that I see, and, and, and maybe we can, you, you can dive in and start talking about these in your missional community. Well, I see politics being an idol. And we'd be like, amen, come on. Politics being an idol, our president's Twitter feed, our 24-hour news cycle reporting, and all, all the political unrest, it's, it just causes a great deal of anxiety in you. It's caused division in families, families that voted different directions. Um, it, it's just... It's just really caused us as a country, as a people, to just live with this anxiety of fear of the future, of uncertainty, of not sure what what to do here. But David Brooks, he writes for the New York Times, said politics these days make categorical demands on people. It demands that they remain in a state of febrile excitement caused by this or that scandal or hatred of that moment, but it doesn't actually transform life or even fill the hole left by the lack of other attachments. It's because politics, political positioning, gives us control. I vote this way. I am this person. It gives us control where we're putting politics in its place and putting God in his place is really what we need. This is our time as the church to live as though we were made for another world where we aren't blue or red, but compassionately and wisely living in this world as a true citizen of another, where we certainly care, we're involved, we're invested, but we're not wringing our hands with anxiety and fearful of the future of all this. So is politics an idol for you? Is that pointing to something in you? I also see image as an idol. It's a huge idol. I mean, who you're seen with, what position your Instagram story is, what epic fun you're having. I'm having the most epic night of my life. I mean, we're so afraid to live in this liminal space where uh, we aren't so impressive. We're just humble, living our lives, you know, where uh, our highlight reel isn't displayed everywhere. I mean, 2013, 56% of people admitted to uh, struggling with FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. That's 2013. I mean, can you imagine what it is now, 2019? I couldn't find a statistic for it, but maybe, maybe you're like, I'm stronger than the statistics, right? I don't have any FOMO or any, any of that kind of, I don't have any image problems or those kinds of, maybe that's you here. Um, all this might swirl around still an image of an idol, an idol of image. We hate this one, and we will do whatever we can to deny it. Like, where the politics one's least cool, right? That's a cooler idol. It's like, well, at least I'm fighting for my country. But this one, well, we hate this one. It's not cool, and we wish we didn't struggle with it, and we wish we didn't care so much about our image, and we wish we didn't have to fashion ourselves in a way that, uh, that makes us more than we actually are. But we all do. I want to point out one more idol, just, just to be really practical. One that's a little more collective, it's consumerism in the church. 
Now, I realize pointing this idol out can be a little bit self-serving to me, and certainly Brandon did not pay me to talk about this, or he asked me (laughs) all to talk about this. He didn't put me up to it. But I see many believing that their individual needs become so much greater than other needs around them, and that we, uh, because we have demanding and generally fulfilling careers, you have little left to give to other people. We just don't know how to give. We just are wired to say, I want. Give me. And the church has got a huge issue going on with this consumerism. It's just, it's, it's, it's like cancerous in us. So maybe church Church has become a space to uh, just get what you want and uh, give uh, the leftovers. Oh, Brandy, where's Brandy? I really loved just her um, saying, I'm going to commit to being a member here and give, <laughs> even though she might be leaving soon. Like, that's, that's fighting against consumerism, fighting against that idol. And I'm not talking about just making sure you serve on Sundays and that kind of thing. I'm talking about Monday to Saturday being the church wherever you go, looking to give yourself to the community instead of saying, what can I get from the community? Now, politics, image, consumerism, I'm just hitting the surface of a few things maybe that you um, have experienced, a few idols that you've experienced. There's so many more. I mean, maybe you've heard this before, but our hearts are an idol factory. We are idol factories. We make them over and over and over again. One gets defeated, another one pops up. There are so many more, deeper ones, and they need prayer. We need to pray for one another in these. We need some one-on-one conversation. We need to sit down with our closest friends and say, what idols do you see in me? And let's name it, and let's unmask it, and let's show that it is powerless, and let's look to Christ who is powerful and see who he is in his glory and his majesty and say, he's actually the one in control. We need someone to come along with, come alongside us and just draw out these idols, dig them out of you, pray over them, talk about them. Now, I mean, that's, that's like one of the part of the story of Israel. That's why this is here. This is here because they've got to name it. They've got to say, yes, we fail. And we can do that too. Now, if we can go back into what we see in Exodus 32, the idol of the golden calf, and we can think about the idols you hold up, it simply can't be removed. Okay, we can't just say, okay, I'll stop doing that one. They have to be replaced. Has to be replaced. Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers, he's famously stated that seldom do any of our habits or our flaws our idols, seldom do they just disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or mere force of mental determination. We can't just wish them away or make them go away. Here's what he says. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so, as we see Israel taking their journey to replace their idol, what do they do? they replace it with the everlasting glory of God, which is chapters 33 and 34, which why I I can't just not talk about those for a second. These have to go together. And again, I'm trying to tee it up for next week, so if you're preaching Brandon or whatever, hopefully I'm not 
preaching your sermon, but I want, I want to do this by looking at the glory of God and see how God can dispossess the idols that we have. Maybe it's politics or image or consumerism or sex or career or marriage or power or money, family, traveling, knowledge, all of these things that are good things in our lives that become God things. But what can we do to dispossess these incredible powers in our lives? Well, the simple answer is God. This is uh, what verse 33, verse 3a says, and we'll, we'll hear the story. It says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, at first reading, chapter 33, we see God is finally sending Israel to the promised land. That's a good thing, right? I mean, all this just happened, and God's like, okay, fine, go to the prom- promised land. Make Despite making their idols of the golden calf, they suffered some terrible consequences of this choice. Despite that, they're being sent to their final destination. This is actually great news, except that it's not. It comes with really bad news. God is saying, it's okay, fine, go. Go up to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. Now, do you see why I started by saying the, God's posture, the most important thing we can remember is that God's presence, God wants to be with his people. And here we get to this spot in chapter 33. says, okay, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going. Verse 33b says, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You can go, but I'm not coming, God is saying. What would you say if you could have the land flowing with milk and honey, but not God? What would you say if you could have all of the heavens, the things that you've dreamed about, the life, the promised land, but no God, without God. This question reveals the heart of our vision of God or our relationship with God. Is he the genie who just gives you what you want? Is he the God who just gives you the manna, guides you by pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, the God who just gives you a cool tabernacle, tent, that kind of thing in the middle. The, the genie. Is he your God when everything's in place? What are you desperate for here? God or comfort? God or control? God or your idol? What is your true desire here? This is what he's drawing out of Israel. What is it you actually want? Do you just want provision? Do you just want the stuff or do you want me? Because you're displaying right now that what you want is actually your stuff. You see, we are made for communion with God. It's like it's coded in our DNA. Christianity is not just an afterlife insurance policy or a guru who points us along this crazy life, but we were made to walk with God in friendship, in fellowship, in awe of who he is. And now we see what Israel's relationship to God 
It's, it's been broken. It's been shattered here. Look, God calls them in, in chapter 33. If you look, he says, he calls them the people. He stopped calling them my people. He says the people instead of my people. There's a distance in the language that God is using. Does this di- distance here create a desperation for God? Does this create a people falling on their knees and saying, God, do not leave us. We can't go to the land flowing with milk and honey. We don't want milk and honey because we want you. For Israel, this was tragedy. In verse 4, we see this. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. We don't mourn. We don't mourn in, in the separation between us and God because we feel like, hey, well, we're in the land of milk and honey. I got everything I need. We don't mourn our constant drift towards a million different idols. Maybe it's because we don't realize how damaging this is to our communion with him. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I got to live in New York City, and so some people have this perception that I see celebrities every day. Um, and if I do, I don't know who they are because I'm not very good at that kind of thing. But, you know, we're looking out at our pop culture today and we're seeing Kanye West come out with this album of worshiping Jesus. Jesus is king. And we're seeing Chance the Rapper singing uh, about Jesus and Justin Bieber converting to Christianity and all of these people having these things and uh, these, these, these conversions. And whatever it's true about those or not, the reality is, is they're getting to places where they're like, I have everything I want and yet nothing I need. I need something real. Some of you just may not have that yet. You may not have all the riches and popularity and those things. You're still striving for those things. But Israel here is at this place where they're like, I want nothing but God. I want him. And they're mourning and they're getting it and they're turning back to God. And so Moses has this compassion with them. He sees their repentance, so he prays for them. He pleads that Israel will not just be called the people, but your people. He pleads for favor, for God's presence, for rest with him. His plead isn't for stuff and for comfort and for healing, though those aren't always bad, okay? Don't don't hear me. Those aren't always bad, but he's praying for a restored communion, restored relationship, So God says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is all that God wants. Moses, in that moment of gratefulness, asks God for this expulsive power to drive the idols out, to restore and to heal Please show us your glory. Please show us your greatness, who you are. Oh, this is, this is what I want for you today. This is what I want for all of us today, to be overwhelmed with God's glory, his presence with us, to be here in our midst, to experience a power greater than any cheap idol that you can come up with. Even the greatest idol that you have in your life can be blown to bits by the great glory of God that exists right here in this room with the saints today. Exodus 33, 19 through 20 says, this is how God responds. And I want us to hear it because maybe this is what he's saying to you. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, be, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now there's a lot happening in this response. We see both the grace of God at work and yet his power at work. Power so much that God has to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. He has to cover his face with a veil as he goes to the people after the uh, Ten Commandments. We've seen that. We see the people, even Moses, the friend of God. Moses is the friend of God. They're all too feeble to take in the glory of God, to take in his full presence. So God puts Moses in a cleft. And this is a small sliver of God's glory on display. And then chapter 34 is Moses and God reiterating the power and seeking forgiveness. And all all this is happening, and all this is going on, and the glory is shining among the people, and the glory is brought down to the people through Moses. They're overwhelmed by it, but let's stop and zoom out and get what's going on. The people have made an idol They have broken their relationship to God. This is a grave sin against God, and they created an unspeakable chasm of relationship between us and him. But they still can't live without him. They still can't have him, and I hope that's where you stand today. You still can't live without him. It's it's the confession that we had today, earlier. I I know not what I do. I, I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It's that confession of that desire that we have. We don't know how to do it. We live in that tension. It's a tension that Israel felt, and Paul felt in Romans 7, and Moses feels this tension. It's a tension that I feel in my own life every day, and so it's as if they're hacking their way. Life hack, right? It's a life hack. They got one of those three-minute videos where they're hacking through things like, hey, you want the presence of God? Here's what you need to do. Build this temple. Get in this cleft. Put on this veil. What else, right? What else can we do to hack our way through this? But the hack, as we know, doesn't last forever, does it? So John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when John wrote this passage, he's standing in the crowd of Israelites all around him, just remembering and recounting the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke, the golden calf, the veil, the cleft, Moses pleading, crying out. Aaron's foolishness. He's thinking about all of these, and he's saying, now we don't have to hack our way through it anymore. We don't have to have any of these things anymore. We don't have to hack. We can have the fullness of grace and truth, the full power of God through Jesus Christ in our midst right here, right now. The people who have longed to see God dwell with them, they also knew that yeah, Exodus thirty three twenty says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. He knew now we can see God and live. John is telling us we don't have to hack through it anymore, but in Jesus Christ, God's Son, we can look into the face of God, see his glory, and live. And not just live, but actually have life, abundant life, life to the fullest. Do idols give those life, give us life? No. Not at all. Jesus 
is the embodiment of all the tension of Israel ever experienced. The tension, the tension of forgiveness and punishment, the tension of grace and truth, the tension of righteousness and sin, mercy and justice. When Jesus died on the cross, our idolatry, our rebellion was punished so that we could receive his righteousness. Our guilt was taken away so that we could enjoy our forgiveness. You see, in the story of Exodus, God tells us that if he went with us into the promised land, his glory would destroy us and crush us. If he went with us into the promised land, we would die. So instead of destroying us now, he has destroyed sin through Jesus Christ so that he could take us into the promised land without crushing us. We can journey with him into that promised land, and we can start that today. We can have communion with him, and we can start that today. God has turned our idols into dust by his glory in Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you take Jesus? Why wouldn't you take him? Let's pray. Father, we know that it is in Christ that we have new life and we have this hope and we have this joy. And I pray, Father, that you would not leave us, that Christ would dwell with us, that your Holy Spirit, who you sent to us, would be here in this place right now, ministering to us and overpowering every idol that destroys us and that crushes us. God, and then I pray that you might save some in this room today that, who don't know you and who are in this place like Israel and just stuck on their idols. I pray that you would draw them into communion with you. And we ask, Lord, we ask for your presence and for your glory in Jesus' name.